Revelation chapter 14, Revelation chapter 14, and if you're joining us for the first time, we're currently going through the book of Revelation. And this morning, the the title of the message is Babylon Has Fallen, Babylon Has Fallen. Where we're at this morning in the book of Revelation, or the point of the tribulation period, I say we're, 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 we're in the last half of the great tribulation period now. A world that's been ruined by man as a result of his sin. The seals have been broken, and the Holy Spirit, which is the restrainer, has been removed. Man's ungodly, wicked and evil desires that God has held back have been turned loose. And they've been allowed to run wild and free, resulting in total demonic insanity and devastation on earth. With the blowing of the trumpets, the picture of a ruined world by Satan has now gotten worse. Satan's power, like I said, has been set free. He's been, uh, he's been allowed to do whatever he wants to do. And his evil plans for the destruction of the world have been allowed to be carried out. The world has been deceived by the Antichrist, thus they've joined with him. And all that he's espoused is truth and, and you know, pro, uh, problem solving to the world. He's been praised by the people, he's been worshipped as God. The wiles of the devil have been allowed to finally reach this high point that we're at here in the scriptures. But here in chapter 14, things start to change and they start to turn around as God has taken over now the affairs of men. And from here on, we have a picture of a world rescued by God. And, you know, we do have a world that is in, in desperate need of rescuing by God. This is a long section of the book of Revelation, and it covers a very long period of time. It goes to the end of chapter 20, and it covers the final struggles of the Great Tribulation. It covers the battle of Armageddon, and it covers the millennium. It covers the final rebellion of Satan. It covers the great white throne judgment and the beginning of eternity. So let's begin now with verses 1 through 5. And John says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with, one, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of a loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. This special group of 144,000 Jewish men, they were, sealed, they were sealed by God before the seventh seal was opened back in chapter 7. And now here in chapter 14, they're seen here on Mount Zion with the Lord Jesus Christ. When the, rest of this, uh, when the rest of their nation is deceived by the Antichrist, these men will start crying out against the treaty uh, that, that Israel makes with him. The two witnesses that we saw back in chapter 11 will be bearing witness of Jesus Christ. 
In the fifth trumpet judgment, as the fifth angel sounded, John saw a star that was falling from heaven to the earth with the key to the abyss that is the bottomless pit. Satan opened the abyss and all of these hellish demons came out upon the earth. Remember, these creatures looked like locusts and yet they had stingers like scorpions. These scorpions were, or these scorpion-like figures, they were given instructions not to hurt the grass, the trees, or any green thing. Only those men who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. The 144,000 that are marked and sealed by God were done so because God had a purpose for them. They were not hurt or to be hurt by these remaining judgments that would come upon the earth. The 144,000 are found in typology in the Old Testament. Remember at the time of Noah, God said that the earth was exceedingly wicked and it was only found in men to do evil continually. So he decided to destroy it. He saw only one man who was righteous, and that man was Noah. And he commanded Noah to build an ark. So again, out of uh, Noah's obedience and faith, he built the ark. And he and his family with the animals entered the ark. Then God shut the door and judgment came. But Noah was spared the judgment because he was protected by God in the ark. Noah passed through the tribulation or the judgment, which were represented by the 40 days and nights of constant rain. He wasn't harmed through all of that. He's a type of the 144,000. Then we have Noah's great grandfather, Enoch. Genesis 5 tells us. Enoch walked with God, and it says he was not, for God took him. Enoch is a type of the church, walking with God, who is raptured or taken out before judgment comes. You have Lot also taken out of Sodom and Gomorrah, a type of the rapture before the judgment came. Chapter 7 makes it clear that these men, these 144,000 men, are actually Israelites, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. And John says the 144,000 are singing a song that belongs only to them, according to verse 3. Because, you see, of the special experiences that they had during the tribulation. They have a new song that nobody else can sing. It says that they're accompanied by heavenly harps and other heavenly voices in verse 2. And one day, all of God's people's sorrows will turn into songs. Verse 4 says that these men are virgins, which simply means these 144,000 Jewish men were not married. They were separated to God for his use. And while most of the world bowed down to the image of the beast, that is the Antichrist, the 144,000 were faithful to the true and living God. While others lied to get what they needed, the 144,000 are without deceit and faultless, John says in verse 5. And these men, John said in verse 4, follow the Lamb wherever He goes. In other words, they will be completely loyal to the Lamb, which is Jesus Christ, no matter what the cost to them. John Phillips, in his commentary on Revelation, says this about the 144,000. He says, they allow no rivals, no refusals, and no restraint to mar the dedication to Him. Does He... That is, God needs someone to stand upon the steps of the Vatican and cry out against the marriage of Christianity to the Antichrist? No, there are 144,000 ready to go. Does the Lord need someone with boldness to confront the beast at some high function of state and severely condemn him and his policies? 
and his affairs of state, his religion, his economic boycott, his mark, his ministers, his alliance with Satan. No, there are 144,000 eager to go. Does the Lamb, Jesus Christ, need evangelists to proclaim to the untold millions the gospel of the coming kingdom of God? To climb the highest Himalayas, to cross the desert sands, to blaze evangelistic trails through steaming jungles, or to, hush, or to mush huskies across wide Arctic wastes? No, there are 144,000 ready to go. And though the beast state police dog their footsteps and wreak havoc on their converts, uh, his direst vengeance, yet on they go undaunted and undetoured. You see, that was the very spirit of these men, of their consecration as they followed the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb, wherever He led them here on earth at that time. They were the first fruits of God, it says in verse 4. The word first fruits means the very finest. They were the best. It also gives the idea of an unexpected, or I should say, yeah, of an unexpected harvest. Now, during the Feast of First Fruits, the priest would take a sheaf and he'd wave it before the Lord as a sign that the whole harvest belonged to him. Believers today are like these very special men, but we've been redeemed. And we're not a part of this world system. Now, in verses 6 through 13, we have the announcements of three angels. But we have at least six of them. Uh, We have six different uh, special messages to proclaim that God's judgment has come. So let's begin with verse 6 and 7. And John says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. So this is God's last offer for people to be saved. And many will be. Right now, the angels don't have the privilege of preaching the gospel, but we do. We have not only the privilege, but you know, we also have the responsibility. You know, God made us custodians of his word and he made us custodians of his word, not just to have it and to know it, but to share it. To teach it to others, to preach it to others. This angel calls the people to fear and to glorify him and him alone. And it's a reminder that God is the creator. And God alone is the one who deserves worship. Nobody else. All of creation is a testimony to God's existence and his power and his wisdom. Paul made that clear in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. When he was speaking to the Romans, he said, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things, notice, that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Paul said, look around. Look at the sky and the heavens and the animals and the flowers and the birds and and the grass and all that's been created. All of God's invisible attributes. He says, look at, he says, he says, and when you do, he says, it's obvious that there's been a creator clearly seen. He says, so that man is without excuse. You know, somebody might say, well, you know, I've never heard the gospel preached. I never heard about Jesus Christ. He says, Paul says, all you had to do is look around. And it tells you clearly that there is an almighty God. There is a creator. But the Antichrist, 
He's going to convince men that he is God. He's going to convince men, hey, I'm in charge. And that their futures are in his hands. So the angel's message here is calling men to come back to basics. The angel said, hey, God is creator. In verse 7, he said, God made the heaven and the earth. He made the sea and the springs of the water. Therefore, worship him only and serve him only. Look at verse 8 now. John goes on to say, And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So the angel calls out that Babylon is fallen. What this angel says here looks forward to the things that we'll see happen in chapter 18 and also in chapter 16, verses 18 through 19. But we'll look, at, we'll look at those things in more detail when we get there. The word Babylon, or the name Babylon, is God's name for the world system of the Antichrist. And the whole economic and political system that he rules by. The harlot, mentioned in, verse, in chapter 17, that is the religious system, the false religious system that the Antichrist uses to help build his kingdom. And when the Antichrist sets up his own religion... He will destroy the harlot, but God will destroy Babylon. Look at verses 9 through 10. John says, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone. Notice, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The third angel's message is specifically for those who are thinking about following the Antichrist. There will be those that just don't know which way to go. And it's going to be very difficult to not accept the mark of the beast. Because you won't be able to buy or to sell. You won't be able to get the necessities that you need to live by. And especially those with families, with kids. You won't be able to feed your family, take care of your family without the mark of the beast. But if you accept the mark of the beast, you're damned forever. And so there will be those that is in that kind of limbo position. What do I do? You know, how do I get out of this mess? You know, but it's a warning here by the angel not to take the easy way. All right. And, and you know, we're, we're prone to look for easy ways out. We're prone to look for the for the easy road, for the shortcuts in life. Solomon said in Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man. Notice seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Because it's not God's way. And remember, any dead fish can float downstream, but it takes a live fighting one to go against the current of God. And today, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're a Christian and believe in the word of God, hey, you're going against the current of this world. You are definitely going against the current of this world. And it's easy to, hey, you know what? I'm going to go with the flow. I'm just going to follow everybody else. It says here, though, John said, if anyone worships the beast, that is, if you take the easy way, if you accept his mark. This suggests, again, there's still a chance to repent and to be saved. That's why I said, if anyone worships the beast. But if you do, you're doomed. 
Drinking of the cup is sometimes used as a picture of the judgment of God. God's final judgments on man will be vials and bowls of wrath poured out from heaven in chapter 16. But God is not going to mix mercy with his judgment. A lot of times God mixes mercy with his judgment. But this this is going to be God's judgment. It's going to be 100% undiluted wrath on a rebellious Christ-rejecting world. And we read in verses 10 and 11, and people are going to be tormented with fire and brimstone. And in verse 11 says, the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. This angel obviously believes in an eternal place of judgment, punishment, which a lot of people don't. Jesus also taught this eye-opening truth. Jesus said it's eternal fire. He says it's an unquenchable fire. He says the fire that is not quenched. Now, there are those people who say, how can a living God really allow human beings to suffer that kind of torment forever? Now, you may not like what the Bible says. You may not like the word torment or the picture that is portraying here. But it's a real happening. The Holy Spirit uses the word torment here to picture, to show us that hell is not going to be a fun place. And we have to remember that God's love is a holy love and God's love is not based on an emotional, syrupy sentimentality where he says back, oh, you poor thing. And that's he's not doing this out of anger. That is, you know, he's not doing it out of uh, out of being mean or bad. It's because of his holiness. He has to deal fairly with sin. And it's clearly taught in the Bible and demanded by God's justice and holiness that he will judge sin. We also have to remember that God has warned sinners over and over for more than 2,000 years about his grace and the gift of salvation and the love of Christ. And he's given man more than enough chances to repent. The first angel invited sinners to turn to God. The second one warned that the whole Babylonian system is going to be destroyed. And if people continue in their sins and they continue to reject Jesus Christ after God sends judgments and warnings, then they can only blame themselves for ending up in eternal torment. That was described in verses 10 and 11. You will never be able to blame God. Notice the difference between verse 11 and verse 13. There's no rest for the wicked, verse 11 says. But verse 13 says there's eternal rest for the saints. For those who make Jesus Christ their Lord. Isaiah said in Isaiah 8.22, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. It would appear to be a no-brainer. Let's see. Eternal rest. Eternal torment. Hmm. Tough decision. And yet people will still reject Christ. It's better to reign with Jesus Christ forever than with the Antichrist just for a few short years to take the easy road. It's better to suffer through persecution patiently now than to escape it and suffer torment through all eternity. Verse 12. John says, here is the patience of the saints. 
Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. The rest that's mentioned in verse 13, it comes through patience, patient uh, endurance and faithfulness to God and his word. John says, here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith in Jesus Christ. These words bring courage and comfort to those saints who are battling and who are being persecuted during the Great Tribulation period. God wants to encourage his people to be unwavering, to stand strong, to hang in there during times of trial. Focused on what blessed rest and reward is waiting for uh, uh, for them in eternity. Verse 13. John says, then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, write, write, blessed are those dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit that they may rest from their labors and their works. Follow them. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. These are the only celebrated dead. They die for the cause of God. They die with the joy and the approval of God, and they die to live and to reign with God for all eternity. And notice what John says, and their works follow them. You know, the works follow them. That is their patient endurance and work is remembered by God. In other words, every drop of blood, every twinge of pain experienced by God's people in his service will not be forgotten. Our work for the Lord Jesus Christ goes with us to heaven giving honor and meaning to all of the work that we do here below. Verse 14. John says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Before Jesus Christ returns and sets up his kingdom on the earth, the world is going to experience a, a terrible bloodbath. God is going to completely let go all the powers of darkness and the forces of Satan that will cause total destruction throughout the whole earth. John had a vision here of this terrible battle of Armageddon. That's what he's going to it's what he's going to speak about here. He had this vision of this terrible battle of Armageddon that we've heard so much about. The Valley of Megiddo is where this battle is going to take place. And John says here in verse 14, he says, I saw a white cloud. He says, and sitting on that cloud was one like the son of man, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said he saw him coming up in, uh, coming to set up his kingdom in fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. He's ready to take absolute ownership that Daniel prophesied about the reaping uh, and sitting and waiting. And he's waiting for the right time to reap. So Jesus Christ is ready to take absolute ownership. You know, when, when, when it's that time and, and again, right now he is sitting as the reaper and he's waiting for the right time to start that reaping. The reaping, which is the bowl, the seven bold judgments will be followed by Christ's return to set up his kingdom on the earth. Now, the reaper Christ is also described as having a golden crown on his head. Now, this crown is a victor's crown that was won by victors in war or in athletic events. And it's called the crown of victory. It pictures the son of man, that is Jesus Christ, not in his identity as the sovereign ruler, but as the victorious conqueror, conquering all his enemies. 
John says that he saw in the reaper's hand a sharp sickle. Now, if you don't know what a sickle is or what it's used for, a sickle, uh, sickles were used to cut down grain. And it's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ cutting down his enemies like a harvester cutting down grain. Look at verse 15. John says, and another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap. For the time has come for you to reap for the harvest of the, of the earth is ripe. So now this fourth angel comes on the scene. The first three angels announced the judgment that was coming. This fourth angel gives the command that the last three angels gave to carry out that judgment. This angel, John says, came out of the temple and with a loud voice which is a a picture of conveying urgency and power and the authority given to him from God. And John says that the angel cried out to him, Christ, who sat on the throne and said to him, Christ, or the, the, the one sitting on the throne, thrust in your sickle and reap. And he said, because the time to reap has come. The harvest on the earth is ripe. So he gives the message from God the Father to the Son of Man, which is Christ, that it's time for him, it's time for Jesus to bring judgment. God's anger has reached its limit and his wrath is now to be poured out. The time of mercy and grace is over. And there's no more waiting for the judgment. The Son, Jesus Christ, can now carry out his right that the Father gave him to judge. Because the earth is ripe for judgment. The word is ripe means dried up, withered, overripe, or rotten. The grain, that is the earth, pictured here, is beyond the point of any usefulness. And it's fit only to be, as Jesus said, gathered up and and burned with fire. Verse 16. John goes on to say, So he who sat on the cloud which was Christ, thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. This is one of the saddest things, one of the saddest pictures in the Bible. It gets straight to the point, and it records God's judgment being carried out now on those on the earth. And the scary details of that judgment are shown to us in chapter 16, which we'll get to next time. But... Chapter 16, the, the details, like I said, are, are shown to us there. And in chapter 16, this is what it says as a result of those judgments. There will be foul and loathsome sores on the worshipers of Antichrist. Also, all life in the world's oceans will die. The water in the world's rivers and springs will be turned to blood. The sun's heat scorches people. Painful darkness is over all the Antichrist's kingdom. The Euphrates River will be dried up to prepare the way for a massive invasion by the kings of the east. And the most powerful and destructive earthquake in history will take place. All of that, God's judgment. Those seven bold judgments are poured out one after another. One after another. And they mark the first round of the final reaping of the earth. Verse 17. John says, then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. He also having a sharp sickle. So like the fourth angel in verse 15, 
this fifth angel came out of the temple as well in heaven. Like Jesus in the previous vision, this angel also had a sharp sickle. Jesus had a sickle and this sharp and this angel had a sharp sickle. Jesus Christ is going to be assisted by holy angels in his final judgment. Verse 18. John says, and another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe. So this sixth angel comes out from the altar. And this heavenly altar is the one mentioned back in chapter six. And it probably represents the Old Testament incense altar where priests would burn incense to be offered in the holy place twice a day as a picture of the people's prayers. And since the martyrs underneath this altar are seen praying and prayers are associated with incense, that's, a, that's what this picture is that John is giving. Those martyred saints under the altar in chapter 6 are praying for God to take vengeance on those, remember, who tormented them. And, and they're asking their their. They're in prayer asking God to send his wrath. Every morning and every evening, the Old Testament priest would take hot coals from the brazen altar where the sacrifices were offered and bring them to the incense altar. There they would light the incense. That incense would rise. The smoke would rise to heaven, symbolizing the prayers of the people rising to God's people. And at the same time, the people outside would be praying as well. Now, this angel had the power over the altar's fire, showing that he'd been ministering at the heavenly counterpart to the earthly incense altar. Unlike the angel in verse 17, this angel doesn't come from the throne of God, but from the altar connected with the prayers of the saints. This angel coming on scene now means that the time had come for those prayers to be answered. The prayers of those saints under the altar in verse 16 now that this angel is coming on the scene, speaking of those, shows, okay, it's time for those saints' prayers to be answered. The time had come for God to take fire associated with intercession and use it to destroy his enemies and the enemies of his people. The angel, it says, he cried out with a loud voice to him who had the sickle. Speaking of Christ, thrust in your sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe. So in answer to the saints prayers under the altar in chapter six, the time for reaping of judgment comes. Now, unrepentant sinners, those who are still rejecting Christ are pictured as clusters of grapes here and they're to be cut off by the reaper's sharp sickle from the vine of the earth. That is from earthly existence. The word ripe pictures earth's wicked, unregenerated people filled with the juice of wickedness and ready for the harvest of righteousness. Verse 19. John says, So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. So the result now, of the angel swinging his sickle back and forth across the earth, it was terrible. All of God's enemies who survived the seven bold judgments will, are going to be gathered like clusters of grapes that are ripe, ready to be harvested from the vine of the earth and thrown in the, into the great wine press 
of God's wrath. Now, a wine press, a wine press was made of two stone basins. There would be a stone basin at the top, and then there would be a trough that would connect the stone basin to the bottom. And so what would happen when the grapes were trampled in the upper basin, the juice would flow down from that trough and would collect in the lower basin. Now, as they would stomp the grapes in the upper basin, the grape juice would splatter all over the place. Which clearly pictures the splattered blood of those who will be destroyed during the tribulation period. When, again, the sickle goes through the land. Verse 20. And the winepress was trampled outside the city. And blood, notice, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles for 1,600 furlongs. This describes the Valley of Megiddo filled with blood from the Battle of Armageddon. Jerusalem, where it says here, outside the city will be spared to become the capital of Christ's kingdom. The Battle of Armageddon is going to be so widespread that blood will come out from the wine press up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Millions of people will be fighting in the Battle of Armageddon. They'll be fighting against Christ. As all of the nations gather together to fight against the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, it's still hard to imagine that, that there's going to be a flow of blood up to the horse's bridles, which is about four feet high, four feet deep for a distance of 200 miles. When Jesus returns, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and all of their human and demonic forces are going to be wiped out immediately. Unregenerate man, Christ-rejecting people are going to face a horrible future. As this unimaginable scene here shows us, those who refuse to repent, even after being warned over and over and over again, will learn, will personally learn the eye-opening truth that the wages of sin is death. And those who put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ will know that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul said, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. And for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And Paul said, let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if, if we do not lose heart. So we need to listen to Paul. And we need to continue to fight the good fight and continue to do good and to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ regardless of what happens and not lose heart because our reward is waiting for us. Father, we thank you once again for your wonderful word. And Father, uh, a wonderful thing for the believer, but a horrible thing for those who still reject Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray Always that your spirit, God, in these last days, 
would turn men's hearts toward you, Father. That, God, your spirit would tenderize hearts, Lord. That your spirit would help them to open their eyes and to see clearly. Clearly and long enough to make a righteous decision for Jesus Christ. Because the day of grace and mercy is coming to a close. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Our prayer is that the Holy Spirit would move in your heart. And that you listen. With all of your heart and with all of your mind, not with your emotions. But by faith in the word of God. The worship team is going to lead us in a song of worship. And if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, while Christ may still be found, this is your time. So as they lead us in this song, if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, you get up out of your seat, you make your way towards down, down the aisles towards the steps up front, and I'll meet you there. And when this song's over, we'll say a simple prayer of faith together.